Mac Power Users, episode 229, Mac Power Users Live for December 6, 2014. Hey everybody, it's David Sparks along with my pal Katie Floyd, and we are the Mac Power Users. Welcome back to the show. And uh, Katie, I'm I'm kind of excited. It's Saturday morning. We're recording another live show. Yeah, kind of like kinda, some days we're Mac Power Users. Some days not yeah. so much. <laughs> well, it's it's aspirational, right? That's that's true. That is the point of the show. Is it is aspirational? Um, and uh, and we haven't recorded a show for a couple of weeks because of the um, the planning and. Thanksgiving, we kind of worked it around so we could do family stuff. And I was just thinking yesterday, I just really need to, to get in front of a mic. I'm going through withdrawals. So I'm, I'm glad we're here today. Yeah, I am too. It's it's great to be here. And, and I think we got, a, we got a pretty good show lined up. We've got a lot of great listener questions that have been submitted. Uh, we've got some audio comments that have been submitted. Uh, we've got a great guest who is uh, joining us here. Uh, a, a few quick announcements, though. We've got uh, love the audio comments. Thank you so much. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, a few quick guidelines, uh, two minutes or less. Please do send them, though, if you can, in a AAC, MP3, MP4, some kind of compressed audio format to keep the size down. I've had a couple people send me, like, really big uh, GarageBand files or really big AIFF files, and it, it just makes prepping the show a lot more difficult. But uh, please send in those comments. The The voice recorder app on your iPhone is actually pretty good for doing that, and it's it's an easy way to do that. So, But uh, thank you to everybody who sent those in. And, and if you record it in GarageBand, you can export it out to a compressed format. So just right. export it. So yep. um, I, I, uh, I launched the first video field guide, Katie. You did? Congratulations on that. That's that's huge. Thanks. You know, it was kind of weird. I thought that project was going to be kind of short and that I'd get it done in a couple weekends. And it ended up taking something like three months. And well, it ended up two and a half hours long. And <laughs> I realized that you could go see like, a Lord of the Rings movie, or you could watch my OmniFocus field guide. Yeah, it's like <laughs> but, it's like longer than Star Wars, isn't it? I think so. Can hey. we talk about the tra- the trailer? No, um, I don't think we can. No, uh, do, have, me. have you heard the uh, incomparable episode on the trailer? It's, it's I have. It's awesome. It's awesome. Those guys long, are great. Longer than the original movie, right? The trailer's eighty eight seconds, and the episode is is like an hour and or two and a half hours or something like that. I, I don't know, but I wanted more. That's all I'm going to say. But anyway, so the OmniFocus field guide is out. It's it's not a book. It's just a video, but it's all bookmarked and it works great. And it's really long, but you'll learn a lot about it. And you can go to maxsparky.com slash OmniFocus and get a copy if you want. Yeah. And if you're you're interested at all in um, OmniFocus, this is a, you know, you did those, the, the trilogy, I guess I should call it, of OmniFocus video podcasts before. And those were uh, the OmniFocus podcast, in my opinion. And I, th- I think you've really outdone yourself this time. So you should be very proud, David. And anybody who's interested in OmniFocus, uh, go check it out at MaxSparky.com. Those are great videos. So congratulations on that. Thanks. And we have something new we've never done before. I don't think so. I don't think we've ever done it before. Yeah. Um, but, you know, kind of end of the year, good opportunity for us to to look back and, and look forward. And um, one of the things I, I wanted to do is just get a little bit of feedback from our listeners. And what better way than during the feedback show? But uh, if you go to MacPowerUsers.com slash survey, and for those of you listening live in the chat, it's not quite up yet, but it, it will be by the end of the weekend. Um, so I'll, I'll tweet about it when, it out, when it's out. Um, we're looking to get a little feedback, uh, a little bit of feedback about this show in particular. Do you like it? Do you like the fact that it's live? What can we change about it? A little feedback about the format of the show. And really, what would you like to see? What could we do? 
do to make the show better? What type of topics would you like to see us cover? It's it's pretty short. It's less than 10 questions. You can get through it in just a few minutes. We we really appreciate um, if you take the time to to really give us some thoughtful comments and and really even constructive criticism is, is what we're looking for. So uh, MacPowerUsers.com slash survey. We'll put a link in the show notes. But appreciate anything you can do about that. So uh, without further ado, are, are we done with all the announcements now? I, th- I think we are. I think it's time to get Finally. on with the show, as they say. Let's get on with the show. All right. So um, we have get to welcome back to the episode um, our friend Todd Olaf. Welcome back, Todd. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah. And we had you back on oh, – I'd have to go look at the show notes to tell us. But you were back on a previous episode of Mac Power Users maybe about this time last year, a little, little over a year ago, to talk about OS X Server. And we have now had a new version of OS X, and we thought it was about time we, we had you back for an update. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was show 189. Always uh, prepared. Well, not really. I, you were talking, so I had a chance to look it up. Okay. Yeah, but so Todd did a whole show with us about using OS X Server, and Todd is kind of legendary for these amazing screencasts he's done on how to set up OS X Server, and, and Todd happens to live close to me, so him and I get together for coffee once in a while, or tea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, well, tea, tea for you, coffee for me, so. Yeah. And um, and we were just we were just talking. He was telling me all this great stuff with Yosemite. I'm like, you know what? Let's just get back on the show and, and do an update. So here we are. Todd, what's new with OS X Server and Yosemite? Uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, uh, obviously, the interface looks different like everything else with uh, Yosemite. They've updated that. Uh, but, you know, they, they, Apple's always just sort of iterating on server, adding a few things to make it easier. Uh, you know, from the days of where, like I said, I started with 10.6, it was really complicated to today. They've really simplified a lot of things. A uh, couple of things that they added, uh, they added a, um, uh, a reachability service. And so what that means is usually what you'd have to do uh, to be able to test whether or not your services were able to be reachable outside on the Internet is you'd have to test that yourself, you know, go go remote or, you know, maybe put your phone uh, into data and uh, try it that way. Uh, but uh, now they've built it right into the app. So Apple actually has it ping. They ping it themselves and then they tell you whether the services are reachable from the Internet. Uh, so that's a really uh, that's a really great feature because it just saves a lot of time. Uh, so that's one of the, that's one of the updates that they've done. Um, and another one they've done, too, is they've, they've added a, an access tab that allows you to, uh, you know, see what services are uh, accessible and what users can access them. And then they give a nice uh, kind of summary of what ports need to be open for those services to be reachable. Uh, those of you that don't know, ports are basically, uh, you know, uh, uh, you're opening windows into your router, into your network through the firewall so that you can actually uh, access those services outside your network. And so they've added just some little touches like that uh, that really has have made it uh, a lot easier. All right, yeah, reachability. Like- really? Yeah, that's actually what they called it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to double tap anything and does like this big black abyss come down? Because that'd be hysterical. No, nothing like that. Although there's a little drop down window, so I guess that's close. All right. I'm sorry, you David. Have to, you have to kind of wonder the story behind that. It's like, did two different teams or marketing groups come up with the same name or did like one come up with it first and the other one said yeah you know i kind of like that let's just borrow it yeah i have no idea i thought that was funny too it's always what i'm talking about i have to go oh yeah that's right on server not on you know the os so (laughs) so the um you know when i thought one of the themes that came out of the show we did with you back in april was that 
server is really increasingly becoming a consumer product more than a business product in a lot of ways. I mean, I know businesses run off OS 10 server and you don't have to send me the email. I know, but the, um, but it seems like they are really kind of pushing hard to get this thing to be something that, you know, uh, somebody in a household with a couple kids can just decide to set up and do it over as a weekend project. Yeah, I would say so. I, they've, they've been simplifying it down more and more. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, there's a, obviously there's still a lot of power under the hood. Uh, you know, I mean, you're running, you know, main server features and things like that, but they are really, you know, trying to simplify it as time goes on. And uh, and that's great. I mean, like I said, you can just kind of see it. it. It's more of a, a you know, kind of refinements that they're doing, not major changes that you see. And so that's nice, too, because you got, you know, kind of some common things from from update to update. Now, in terms of functionality, I mean, we did a whole show on, you know, like calendar management and some of the other stuff you can do mm-hmm. if you set up a server in your home. Uh, is there any new functions that, that people can use? I mean, if someone was on the fence before, is there any you know, burning new feature that's going to make them want to do it now? Uh, you know, there, there's not a not a burning uh, new feature. Uh, like I said, it's more of a refinement of the things that they've already got on there. Uh, so some of the things we talked about uh, before uh, will be very familiar uh, to people. There's not, like I said, not a ton of changes. It's just kind of within each of those, uh, each of those updates, they've added uh, just little things to make them easier to set up. Uh, like, for instance, the uh, permissions uh, for who can access whatever services are now kind of front and center on each of the services so that you don't have to go, you know, into a user's account, set them up there and see it. You can actually see uh, you know, what, what services are available to who, whether it's just on your local net network or whether you're opening it up uh, outside that. Uh, so they've added little things like that just so that you don't have to do so much digging into sub menus as much as you did before. Uh, so again, it, it's much more of just a refinement than it is, uh, you know, in terms of major services and things being added. Uh, but boy, they, they really are, you know, you can kind of see them continually, continually trying to make those, uh, simpler, uh, for home users and, and small businesses and things to be able to put those together without having to have, you know, a whole IT team uh, working on it to make it happen. Yeah. And you get in for just 20 bucks. I mean, you can download it from the app store for nineteen ninety nine. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, there's no better deal than that. And it's an unlimited seat of licenses, too. So it's not like you have to buy per user. Uh, you can put as many users on there as as, uh, as your machine can handle. Yeah. Now, Todd, I, I know we did an entire show on, on server, and I'm going to put a link to that episode in the show notes, and I'm going to refer people back that. And I'm also going to put a link uh, to your great videos and your website in the show notes as well and, and refer people there, and, and we'll talk about those in a few minutes. But mm-hmm. for people who haven't seen those, for people who haven't listened to our episode, t- give us a quick rundown, you know, without going into a lot of detail. But why is OS Ten Server something that I might be interested in and running on a, a spare machine that I have in my house or, you know, a Mac mini that I've got, you know, sitting in a closet or hooked to a TV somewhere or that iMac that's just kind of always on. What do I get, you know, just a quick rundown when I get OS ten server? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, if, if you were if you were a home user, some of the things that are, are convenient is uh, you could have centralized time machine backups. So I know a lot of people have kind of hacked their own backups. If you do, if you have a time capsule, you you already get that. Uh, but some people have tried to, you know, do that with uh, Airport Extreme Base Station uh, with varying degrees of success. Uh, with Server, it it builds right in the Time Machine backups uh, to a central drive. So you can pick any drive uh, that's connected to your to your uh, server, or if you want to have it on your main drive, you can do that. And then anybody, every, all your machines in your household then could back up wirelessly and do Time Machine backups that way. So that's one of the 
one of the nice features again that makes you know makes it worth the 20 bucks uh on top of that uh you have the um the central caching service uh and basically what that does is just downloads all of your uh as you're basically updating one of your devices it will download that information stored on your server. So any other device that tries to download that app is going to go to your server instead of using your bandwidth uh, on your uh, network to pull that down from Apple servers. So that's another uh, another really good benefit. Now, uh, is that Mac only or is, that, is, is there any way you can do that with iOS apps as well? Uh, it's iOS and Mac. Oh, so, so that's great for people who have limited bandwidth. Oh, absolutely. It, yeah. It's a, it's a huge service. Uh, you, you have to have some drive space because it's obviously storing those things on your, you know, on a hard drive. Uh, but it really does. If you got limited bandwidth, that's uh, that that could alone also be make make it worth the twenty dollars for you. Uh, so that's a great service there. Uh, and then on top of that, you have, you know, uh, you, you can manage users. Uh, you have file sharing. You can set up uh, your file sharing there. You can do that on the regular Yosemite. Um, but it's just more convenient to do it right through the server interface. Gives you a little bit more control of that, and um, and so those those are some of the yeah you know, I would say those are some of kind of the basic things. You could also set up your own VPN if you wanted to do that as well, so that if you're out in a coffee shop or in an unsecured network, uh, you can VPN back uh, through your through your server and have all of your uh, connections secured that way as well. Uh, so there's a host of different things that you could do. And again, if you have kids. Uh, servers are a great way to be able to manage all of their devices. They've got what's called Profile Manager, uh, which allows you then to manage all the devices where you could actually make a change, push it to all of those devices, and those changes take place. So if you've got kids or somebody where you kind of want to uh, set up their devices or you want to manage those a little bit, uh, server allows you to do that and allows you to do it right from a web interface. So you can do it from any any machine you might be on. I remember when this was like a really big deal and it cost thousands of dollars and you needed to buy special hardware for it. And now it costs $20 and you can use a recycled Mac. I just, you know, <laughs> we've come a long way in just a few years on this stuff. Oh yeah. I, it, it's amazing how much, how far that's come. You know, I mean, the, you know, when the light licenses for these things used to be hundreds of dollars, now you're looking at $20. And like you said, you can run it and you can run this on a, on a Mac mini, which is Apple's, you know, cheapest machine. Uh, it really, it, it's, it's a great value. Now, setup wise and, and hardware wise, what am I looking at? Because, uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in the show. Maybe this is the time to do this, but I, I had a newer Mac mini. I actually just last weekend had a project where I, I swapped out my newer Mac mini and sent it to the office and brought my older Mac mini at home. It's, I think it's like a 2006, two, oh no, that'd be too old, 2009 Core 2 Duo. And you know, am, am, is that something that I could, it's great for a media server. You know, it's great to serve my iTunes library, but is that something that I should consider running server on? Is it going to get too bogged down? What kind of system requirements am I, am I looking at and, and how big of a project is that going to be? Yeah, great question. Uh, yeah, you could absolutely run that on a, on a Core 2 Duo. Uh, that wouldn't be a problem at all. Uh, one of the things, depending on how many services and things you have running, the RAM is probably more of an issue than the processor uh, on that. So if you've got like a ton of people connecting, obviously you want to have a higher, uh, you know, as much RAM as you can have in the machine. Uh, but it'll, it'll, yeah, it'll run fine for that, especially if you're running it for, for a home server. Uh, and even recently, you know, Apple, uh, you know, even got rid of the, uh, you know, the four core uh, Mac mini, uh, which, you know, some people in the server world were a little upset about just because they might be doing a lot more processing or have uh, bigger setups. Uh, but that machine still will run it no problem. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would say that that you could easily set that up and take advantage of all the services that are on on server. No problem. There's, there's a lot of people unhappy with the Mac mini updates. Yeah. 
there they are. Well, and I think it's because they, you know, they got rid of the official uh, server version of the Mac mini, which, you know, it included server in it. And like I said, it had, it had the four core uh, processors, which, you know, for those that are running, you know, uh, offices and things like that on it, you do want, you know, as much, as much power and uh, in memory as you can get in it. And I think they were looking forward to that next update. And when Apple didn't do that and just went with the, the dual uh, and just went with the dual processor instead of the four core, I think that caused a lot of problems. But from what I read, I guess it was because of the chipsets that they'd have to create a whole nother motherboard set for the, uh, the, the particular chipset. So that it may not be dead. Maybe it'll come out with the next uh, Intel uh, update. You know, a funny thing is, and this is probably not that relevant to the show, but at my office, we had a 10-year-old Dell server that was just getting ready to, to die. So we replaced it with a Mac Mini of the last generation, and it's running a virtualized Windows Exchange server on it. And we bought it, like, I don't know, seven, eight months ago, and we were all thinking, well, maybe we should wait for the new ones, and now we're kind of actually glad we didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah Exactly. Yeah, I'm still I'm still running. Uh, I think the 2011 version uh, myself, and it's working great. No problems at all. Well, and I think really the point we wanted to make, and, and this also came out in the prior show, is that server is something that's really a potential idea for anybody out there now at this point, especially if you've got you know multiple machines in your house and multiple users. And and if you're thinking about that, my recommendation is you go over to Todd's um, YouTube page and just start watching the videos. You don't have to spend any money. You don't have to even download the software. Just watch through those videos because he does such a good job of showing you how it works and what the advantages are. You can make your own decision at that point, you know, whether or not you're going to want to do it. And and I you believe you've got a bunch of content out for Yosemite now already, don't you, Todd? Yeah, I'm starting the whole uh, process again with Yosemite. So I'm rolling all of those out as well uh, to show the differences in that. And yeah, I mean, the thing with server too, just, just so people know is you're, you're just adding the, you know, the server software onto your Mac. So you don't have to stop using your Mac like a regular Mac. You can run, you can use your Mac just like, just like you would use it as a regular desktop, everything else you wanted to do. It just happens to have server running on it uh, in the background. So I think sometimes people think, well, if I, if I change it to a server, now I got to get another Mac because to use for everyday use, uh, you don't have to do that. It just adds it right on top. Nice. And tell people a little bit about the YouTube videos that you do, kind of what they are, how often they come out and, and what you run down there. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I do a weekly YouTube video. And uh, what I've been doing is I work, walk right through a server. And so I go just step by step. So I'll, I'll, I'll teach you what each of the buttons and everything means on the server so that you don't have to worry about hitting something that you don't want to hit or whatever. Uh, but I also I also try to explain why uh, that service is there and what that service does. Uh, because my goal is really to educate people on the whole process, not just go, hey, if you want to do this, here's five steps and then you just follow them. You don't know why you did it, but somehow it magically works. Uh, my goal is to really just help educate people on here's why you're doing it and here's what that does for you and uh, and how to set it up. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of it's it's a lot of fun. And I also respond to comments and things on there. So if people get stuck, you can leave a comment right on the channel or if you want to email me. Uh, my email's on there too. It's just uh, Todd at ToddOltoff.com. And I do my best. I try to respond to every single comment and, and help people out. And there's a great uh, group of people on there as well that also are helpful that uh, have experienced their own things and share their knowledge as well. So it works out really well. 
Well, Todd, thanks so much for for joining us and and for sharing a, a little bit about Server and and more so for for putting these out there for the community. It's a it's a great resource, and I know I've learned a lot about playing with Server. And if this is anything that you're interested in, uh, definitely take a look at, at Todd's YouTube videos um, and check out the the previous Mac Power User Show, and we'll have links to all those in the show notes as well. Yep, absolutely. Love to uh, thank you for having me on the show, and like I said, I'd love to help anybody who wants to get set up with Server. Great. Thanks, Todd. You got it. Thank you. All right. Well, we have got a lot more. We're just getting started today. But before we move on, I do want to take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor for this episode. Um, And that is our pals over at SaneBox. And I I don't know what it is. Uh, You know, this time of year is probably all the sales and things like that that are going on. But I I just had someone in my office the other day uh, complaining to me about the crazy volume of of email that they're getting. And I said, really, I, I, I haven't had that problem. And they said, well, wh- what is it that you're doing? What, what is your secret? And I said, well, it's, it's very simple. I, I use SaneBox. Uh, and, and you can too. You can head over to SaneBox.com slash MPU, uh, sign up for a 14-day free trial, and even save 10 bucks off of your plan. Uh, so what is SaneBox? SaneBox is simply great email filtering. And they do this a couple of ways. SaneBox is a layer that sits between your email server and you. And it will... Uh, analyze your email as it comes in, uh, and it will help keep you in touch and keep your inbox clean with only what really matters. So by default, the first thing that SaneBox is going to do with you uh, is it's going to give you a Sane Later folder, and it's going to uh, look at some of your email habits and try to put in that same later folder, uh, anything that it thinks is really not high priority, uh, maybe things from mailing lists, maybe things from people that you don't correspond with regularly, uh, maybe things that are from bulk senders, all of that stuff's going to tend to go into the same later folder, freeing up your main inbox for things that are really important. Now, of course, it's just a folder away, and you can always go check it. And what's really great about SaneBox is you control it. And the more you train it, the better it gets. So if something ends up in that same later folder that's really important, Move it into the inbox, and it will never make that mistake again. Uh, the other thing that it can add is this same black hole. And I've been pretty vicious about using the same black hole, David, so be on your best behavior. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but what the same black hole does is it gives you a safe way to get rid of email from anybody that you never want to hear from again. Uh, rather than wondering if I click on this unsubscribe button, is it going to is it going to be a bad thing? No. Emails that you drag to same black hole, you'll never hear from that person again. You can also set up various snooze folders, which are great for deferring e- uh, emails until the next business day or the next weekend or another specific day, maybe when you get back into the office. Throw the emails into that folder and they'll pop back when you're ready for them. And you can send yourself sane reminders. So if you send a blind carbon copy or a carbon copy to say one week or January 5th at sanebox.com, if your sender doesn't reply to you, you'll get a reminder to follow up with them then. It makes you look really smart and like you're on top of your stuff. There are various pricing plans, but they start as little as just a couple of bucks a month. Check them out over at SaneBox.com slash MPU. And the SaneBox folks tell us that over 66% of Mac Power user listeners who have tried SaneBox have ended up subscribing. So give them a shot and you'll probably love them too. Thanks, SaneBox, for their kind support of the show. Yeah, we, we are like by far the most successful um, referral source for them because our users get the idea of saving time with email. 
And we've got more in email coming later. But I think, Katie, let's talk first about the iOS apps feedback, because we did that show on our home screens and that that generated quite a bit of feedback. Yeah, it did. Uh, The first bit of feedback we got is from people talking to us about creating a digital wallet, because, you know, I said I I really liked the idea of this Surface Pad, the um, the the case that you're using for your iPhone. Because I would love to get rid of my actual wallet. And the Surface Pad, I think, has three card slots. Two. So you, two. Or two, two, two. That's right. I was and, hoping it, I was wishing not, it had three. Yeah. And it's not one where you can like jam some extra stuff in there. Even just putting an extra, tw- you know, I have an emergency 20 I keep in there. And that is almost too much. So it's, it's just two. So you, can't, you couldn't put two cards in one slot. No, you couldn't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I said, you know, that's just, that's not quite enough for me because I, I only carry two cards, you know, a debit and a credit card, but then I got to carry my ID and then I got to carry my insurance card and then I got to carry, you know, my other insurance card, you know, so all this, even though I carry a very small, slim wallet, I still end up with, I, I think I could get it down to four or five, maybe. And, you know, is there a way that, that we can use Passbook or apps or things like that to, to try to slim it down? And I did this post on my website about how I am putting a lot of this stuff in one password. And one password really isn't replacing my wallet, but I have a scan of every single item in my wallet in one password, more so for use in case of emergency, in case I've absolutely forgotten my wallet and I figure having that scan is better than having nothing. Um or in case my wallet gets stolen, having the scan front and back of an item in my wallet is going to make it easier to try to replace that item and maybe get by a couple of days until that item is replaced. I mean, I'm not, certainly I'm not saying that, you know, having a scan of something is going to to pass for the original. But Linda wrote in, you know, and said, you know, in addition to Passbook and 1Password, she uses an app called Keyring. And there are a couple of different apps like this. I I use one called Cardstar, uh, which is great for collecting cards uh, for arbitrary loyalty cards, you know, everybody wants to give you a little card to go on your key ring uh, and other non-sensitive cards, which aren't in passbook or one pass uh, word, she says. And then I also have some various other individual apps, such as State Farm, which allows me to carry a copy of my digital auto insurance card. And she says her particular state allows uh, it as proof of insurance. Yours may or may not. I don't know. Uh, and she keeps all of those apps in a folder that she calls digital wallet. She says for her health insurance, she saw a tip from one person saying that they saved the image of their health insurance card. And then when someone asked for it at the doctor's office, she emailed it to them on the spot. You know, again, maybe, maybe not your doctor's office may not accept that, but you know, it's a good idea to have these things. The, uh, yeah, there's a couple things. My wife and I have been using Keyring for years and it's great for loyalty card stuff. Um, it puts a nice big barcode that they can scan up, you know, if you've got the right information in there. And I found hit and miss some and some vendors that works and others they look at you like you're crazy and they can't figure it out right but it's it's nice i I had Um, someone tell me that they couldn't scan it because my phone would give them a virus i like that yeah and they were so serious about it there was like i can't scan that it's like well you should so you should carry the uh the application and a box of like cough drops and you could say well here if you get the virus you can take this (laughs) yeah Um, i uh and on Twitter, you know, because we we're talking about this this case I've got, and the jury is frankly still out on it. I like it. I think it's a great design. I don't like having to like peel the front back every time I want to take a picture, and you know, just there's some things about it, you know, because I'm just not a case person to begin with. So, so uh, that's my own re- hangout. Remind me to tell you how my case saved my bacon this week. But yeah, go ahead. I, I saw the tweet. Yeah, yeah. but the um, 
The uh, but uh, one of our listeners, and I didn't catch the name in in Twitter, and I've I don't want to go dig it out now. But whoever it was, thank you, uh, sent in a link to this product called the Wally W A L L Y, and it's uh, manufactured by a company at distillunion.com, D I S T I L U N I U N I O N dot com, and it's a stick on wall. It sticks on the back. It doesn't have a flap for the front. And it's got a nice little slot in there that you can t- put two or three cards. And I don't know how many you can put in it, but I thought it was a good idea. And I don't think I'm going to buy one because I've just spent my money on this other one. But if I really get to the fact that the I can't stand having a cover go over the top, but I still want the ability to to get rid of my wallet, this might be the solution. Um, I mean, my personally, my wallet is very... I have the most basic saddleback leather wallet they make. It's one piece of leather folded in half and I put two or three cards and some cash in it. It's very thin. Uh, I don't do the Costanza thing, uh, but uh, this, this looks pretty cool too. So I would recommend looking at that one as well. It's called the Wally from distill union. All right. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you, and you had your phone take a major tumble this week. You had said, ah, uh, scared. It's, it's honestly the first one of these types of tumbles I've ever had. And it, you know, your heart stops for a minute. Yeah. But, you know, with the phone, the new phones, they are kind of slick. I can see where that would happen. Well, no, this was just this was just totally my fault. Uh, basically, what, what happened is I was, you know, I was walking out in a parking lot and uh, walking kind of quickly in a hurry and pulled my phone quickly out of my pocket and it just slipped out of my hand. And so I was walking, I was moving my phone and, you know, it just not only did it slip out of my hand, but it's, you know, it kind of got tossed onto asphalt. Yeah. And, uh. Whew. Thankfully, it did not flip over, so it stayed face up. But I, it, my leather case has actually got a pretty nice gash in the top of it. But thankfully, the phone is fine. The um, yeah. Uh, so multiple devices with Google Authenticator. We had talked about um, Authy and Google Authenticator on that show. And Rick wrote in says he uses Authy as well, but there's a way to use multiple devices with Google Authenticator. Um, although it wouldn't work in every situation. So to use Google Authenticator with multiple iOS devices, make sure you use um, Google Authentic. Uh, make sure you have them all with you when you're setting up the account when uh, when they get the QR code displays and setting up the account or setting the code. Then open Authenticator with each device and snap the QR code with each of them, one right after the other, and the code will be the same in each device. He says it's not particularly elegant, but it works. And... Um, I thought, well, you know, I guess if that's what you need, that's what you do. I try to really keep the authentication stuff all on my phone alone. And um, one of the things Rick said was, I wish that Authy would have an interface more like Google Authenticator because Authy's icons and words at the bottom are too small. And when you have multiple Google accounts at a quick glance, they all look the same. I could see that. Yeah, I think the one of the other benefits that, that Wally has, though, is that... Um, I'm sorry that Authy has. I'm, I'm thinking about your wallet case now. That Authy has is that after you restore your phone, you can still bring back that same Google Authenticator. I mean, yes, you could potentially, if you do this trick, have it on multiple devices, which is going to help you after you restore your phone because you're still going to be able to get into your stuff on your on your iPad. But you're not necessarily going to be able then to to get that stuff back. Uh, into your iOS device and your iOS device until you reset it. I don't know. Yeah. And Gene wrote in with a question about how we use notification center. And uh, he said, you know, I hear you touch on notification center. It'd be nice to hear a complete show on that. And I I don't know if there's a complete show on that, but um, 
you know, I guess we kind of take for granted that people know what it is. And so there's a notification center both on the Mac and the iPhone and iPad, and they're accessed in different ways. On the Mac, you do it with two finger swipe from the right on the on the trackpad, for instance, and you can have apps customized to show you notifications. And I think the big point we've made probably repeatedly on the show is that, you know, don't go crazy with that. Every application wants to access notification center. And if you have too many notifications, you're not going to read any of them. So you can take your time to set those, but, but boy, there's a lot of news lately about, you know, these notification center widgets on the iOS devices. And it seems like Apple is really not getting its act together on this stuff. So how do you have all of your notifications? I got to tell you, I've been pretty ruthless with my notifications in iOS and I've turned them, I've turned them all, not all, but I've turned many of them off. Yeah. I mean, me too. So it's like, even like uh, for a long time, I had Twitter giving me notifications if I received a, a direct message in Twitter. I, I never had it giving me like notifications when I got a new follower or even when I was referenced in a tweet, but I would have it notify me when I got a direct message because uh, there's a lot of folks in our, you know, our little nerd world that, that communicate through Twitter direct message. They don't send an email. So to them, that is an email. And for me, I'm not used to that. So I would have myself get a notification, but I realized I don't even need that as a notification because I've got the Twitter application open enough that I'll, I'll be able to see those when I'm in TweetBot on my Mac or my phone or whatever. So, um, but that's just an example of another one that I've recently cut. So I try to make it really this, it's just like, um, when we talk about due dates and task applications, you know, you don't want to have a bunch of due dates, and then ignore them because there's 30 things that are overdue and you don't really think that they're due because you don't, you don't, you know, you're not discriminating enough and applying due dates. I think the thing, same thing applies for notifications. And when the Apple watch shows up and you're going to start getting notifications on that, I think it's going to be even more important that you really cut that down to the bare minimum. Yeah. Can, can I give you a tip about the Twitter direct notification thing? Yeah. If you go to the Twitter website, you yeah. can actually customize that. And that Twitter, if you prefer to get all that stuff in your email, and and I know we've just had a whole email show and we got a lot of feedback about it later, um, but you can you can have an email sent to you with the text of the DM if you prefer people come communicate with you in that way instead. You know that's not a bad idea um, because I I'm always just so against getting extra email from services like Twitter, but that may be one that it's worth making an exception for. Right, because then then you get the yeah. DM actually in an email and you can process it like an email. You can either go to Twitter and respond or you can yeah. just take it off Twitter and follow up with that person by email. I'm so torn, Katie Floyd. I'm just saying it's an <laughs> option. <laughs> it's like give myself more email or but then I would assuredly get those messages. But, you know, I, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. I, I'm in TweetBot enough that I would see it. But. And I, I don't think everybody wants me to yak on about that forever. But I, so for me, the idea with notifications is anytime a notification pops up on my iPhone, the first question in my mind before I even read what it is, is, is this something that I want giving me notifications? Like I, if they got a new level in my favorite game and a, and a notification comes in, no. I immediately go to notification center and it's very easy to turn them off and, and to start turning them off. So I'm always looking for things I can cut out or, or if you just drag down your notification center on your iOS device or drag over on your Mac and you see a, a queue of things in there that that you don't care about, then just take the time right then 
not only to delete those messages, but to go into notification center settings and turn them off. So you don't have to see those in the future. Yeah. Um, I, I wish, and I guess it's up to the app developers. I mean, Apple's notification center gives you a default. Okay. Does this, is this app allowed to give you notifications? Yes, no. If so, what kind? Um, yeah, I wish the app developers could, could get better about deciding what, what type of notifications you get. And, you know, I, I, my, my main complaint here are the news apps. I do like to get notifications when there truly is a breaking news event, but man, how many times have you gotten a notification from a, from a breaking news app about like, I don't know who got nominated for an Emmy. Yeah. That, and I, and I realize that that is extremely important to some people. I couldn't care less, and I certainly don't want to get interrupted about it for a notification. Uh, yeah, it'd be really nice. And, and here's a tip to you know CNN and breaking news and all of those folks. Let me customize my notifications and get actual news. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, I, I generally just don't don't put those notifications on at all because I feel like when I'm sitting at my computer working, that's what I'm doing. I'm working, and I whatever news is going to come out, I'll find out about that later. I, I don't, I don't, I can't think of really anything that I want to know immediately. Mm, I, I want to know about major world events, yeah. but you know, there are so few of those, I guess when the really big ones happen, someone's going to come into your office and tell you. Or, you know, the, you know, the fact is Twitter. I'm, I'm, I'm in Twitter. That's true. Probably, probably four or five times a day. That's kind of my drug, right? You know, I, I go to lunch and I'll read Twitter. And so, I mean, if there's something really going on, It'll find its way into my stream. This is true. This is true. All right. Well, speaking of more notifications, we got a lot of feedback about the email episode. Yeah, we did. But uh, but before we do that, let's talk about our next sponsor. And this is a, a great sponsor for the show because they're not making a tech product. They're making something else. But the way they're going about it is kind of geeky. And it's something that I really appreciate. And I like that they want to sponsor our show. And I'm talking about Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. So I don't know about you, but I've bought mattresses over the years from my family and me and my wife. And every time it's I horrible. do it, I dread it. Yeah. You go into the store and you can't tell the models. If you go to two different stores and you see the same mattress, it looks like it's made by the same manufacturer, but they've got slightly different numbers. And the sketchy salesperson will never tell you what the differences are. And you just feel like you're being abused in the process. I mean, it's like an abusive relationship, you and the mattress company. And let's not forget about the fact that you have to go to a strange place and lay down on a bed in public that a whole bunch of other people have laid down on. Am I the only person who finds that weird? Yeah, it is weird. And it's, it's weird watching people do it and it's weird doing it yourself. And then you got to get it to your house. And that means you got to pay somebody extra money or you got to go borrow a truck or you got to tie something to the top of your car. It's just the whole thing is bizarre. So, so Casper fixes that. And, uh, and you know, the mattress industry is notoriously high, uh, um, uh, high in their prices and their markups. And Casper is changing it by cutting out all those middlemen. So uh, a Casper mattress provides this resilience and long-lasting support and comfort. Uh, the mattress is one of a kind because it's got a combination of both premium latex and memory foam. And they're they're very inexpensive. I mean, you can get one for a good price. Uh, you can pay 1500 bucks for a mattress. A Casper mattress costs between 500 for a twin size 
up to 950 for king a king size mattress for under a thousand bucks and they make the buying process so much easier because once you buy it they send it to you a box comes to your house and um if you've ever seen like those cartoons when you're a kid or you know where the guy jumps out of the plane and he's got the little tiny package and he's going to go into the water and he pulls a string and it turns into this big raft that's kind of like Casper mattresses. You get it in this box and you open it. And I, I strongly recommend, because I have one, I'm going to tell you, I strongly recommend you open it in the room that you're going to use it. You know? Oh, that sounds okay. like from personal experience. <laughs> okay. And um, so you open it up and it just kind of expands into this great mattress. And it's I'm, really I'm nice. envisioning like you and your family getting all excited at the front door and opening this package in the hallway. And then like, poof, you all get trapped like against the side of the walls. Well, the, the fact is... My family did get really excited when this Casper mattress showed up because we're so weird. And uh, but so anyway, we took it up, we set it up, and and once you open it up, the thing about memory foam mattresses that I've always had against them is that when you lay in them, it feels like um like you're going into an you know like you're an Egyptian you know and you're going into like your cask. It's like it, fo- it it like forms to you and you like fall into it and it's very kind of strange feeling. But uh, the Casper's combination, the latex plus the memory foam doesn't do that. So it, it's really nice and soft, but it's also firm enough. Um, and if you don't like it, they have a hundred day return period. So you, you got a hundred days to try it out. You don't have to lay on it for 10 minutes in a store and make your decision. You know, sleep on it for a week and then make your own decision then. You know, that that's, I think, the best way to buy a mattress. So you save all the money by them cutting out the middleman. You get a great mattress. It's just, you know, just got the right amount of sink and the right amount of bounce. You're in, you're in good shape. And it's really risk-free because if you don't like it, you can send it back. It's I think it's just a great way to go. If it's time for you to get a new mattress, uh, go support these guys at Casper because, you know, they're shaking things up, and I'm all about that. And because you're listening to Mac Power users, you get $50 off that price. So go to Casper, C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash Mac Power, M-A-C-P-O-W-E-R. It's not Mac Power users. It's just Mac Power. So Casper dot com slash Mac Power and use the code Mac Power so you can get that $50 off and everybody get a good night's sleep. Thanks, Casper. All right. We got a ton of feedback about the email show, and and we're not going to be able to go through it all. I know, but we can try to hit some of the highlights. Yeah, we we touched a nerve, I think. Yeah, (laughs) but but probably the um, the biggest piece of feedback we got went a little something like this. Uh, Dear Katie and David, you spent an hour and a half talking about email, really enjoyed the episode. But how could you possibly spend an hour and a half talking about email and you didn't cover insert name of whatever your favorite email application happens to be here? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some of those were in our outline. Some of the ones that people complained we didn't cover. But, you know, when you get talking about email, there's just so many elements to well, it. Well, when you that... get David talking about email, I mean. <laughs> Sorry. No, I kidding. do talk too much. I'm sure that's going to be a, a common thing on the, uh, the uh, survey. Feed, uh, the yeah. survey. Well, David, please shut up. Um, but it, we, we, I felt, you know, we, we covered a lot, but there just wasn't enough time to cover all the apps. The, you know, the one thing that is encouraging to me about that feedback is the feedback about what we didn't cover, not about me talking too much, is the... Uh, now that's an issue. I mean, for a long time, the the mail applications were whatever Apple shipped, whatever Microsoft shipped, you know, and and there wasn't third party applications that could make a living making third party apps. And now that's like a real thing. So I'm I'm kind of 
glad to hear that people have all these other pet email applications and that developers are now have a chance to try and shake things up again, you know, like Casper. Yeah. And, and the thing that I wanted to, to stress on that is we are always going to miss apps in, in every category because you and I are only two people. And, and really we feel like we will certainly try to give a general overview of as many apps as we can. We're still going to miss apps. And we can certainly only cover cover in depth so many apps because we can only become familiar with so many apps. And we really try to cover the apps that we personally use and that we personally love. And, you know, we had a lot of people say, well, why didn't you use Mailbox? Well, I don't use Mailbox. Um, I'm not a big Gmail user. You know, why don't you talk more about Gmail? And so that's part of the reason why we have this this feedback show. That's part of the reason why we do this show. So if you ever, you know, and, and we're not trying to favor certain apps over others, but if you feel like there's an app that, that we're giving, you know, the short shrift to or we're not talking about enough, that's what this show is for. And so I would just encourage you, you know, if you want to talk about Mailbox or an episode that you or a workflow that you have with that, or if you want to talk about a particular app that we didn't cover in a show, uh, send us an audio comment. Tell us about how you're using it is, is really the best way to, to get that back to us. You know, pop, pop open the voice recorder memo app on your phone and uh, tell us about it for a couple of minutes. And, and we'll try to get all the feedback that we can to, to cover as many apps as we can, because we're going to need some help to be able to do that. You see what okay. I did there? I just outsourced yeah. all of our work to other people. There you go. There you <laughs> yeah. go. Um, uh, uh, we had a couple questions about uh, SaneBox and like the attachment feature. I haven't talked about that too much because I don't use it too much. I My attachments, um, SaneBox has the ability to automatically save attachments to like your Dropbox or a location you identify. Um, I don't really do that. For, for my work, I have someone, whenever I get attachments you know there's i guess there's two worlds you live in your work stuff and your home stuff and because our work jobs are very document heavy and sensitive um documents attached to emails to me get special attention and actually forward them to a person in the office who who extracts them and saves them to the network and you know identifies them to the relevant case and does a whole bunch of stuff yeah so you've those, got people those, yeah aren't i lucky and, um <laughs> And then for the personal stuff, I I just kind of leave them in the mail database because it doesn't seem like it's it's been a problem so far. Uh, there are ways to clean that out. There's apps you can use to clean out your attachments. If attachments are creating a problem for you, by all means, use something like Samebox to automatically save them to Dropbox, and then you can get them out of your your email you know library. The beauty about doing something like that, though, is, is it is an automation opportunity, and you know we're all about automation opportunities. Yeah. So. Yeah. Have you used that feature? I haven't used it, and I was hoping that you had so that you could tell me about what I'm missing and why I should. But it, well, it just works. I tested it. I mean, it just it works. You turn it on, and when you get an email, uh, Sanebox uh, it takes the attachment and saves it to your Dropbox, and then you've got all of those in one folder or one place. You can you can actually make some changes to how exactly it does it. But it's a great idea if that's a problem. But it's not a big problem for me. Uh, Aaron wrote in with a with a really cool tip, and we t we talked about how we love the dispatch email client, but you and I can't use it as our primary email client because we use Exchange for our work related email, and that's that's what keeps me from using dispatch as my primary email client. And Aaron says, I wanted to let you know something I discovered relating to dispatch and exchange. He says he too is an Office 365 user and always wanted to tie those two together and was disappointed when he couldn't. 
But he learned that in Office 365's website, you can access third-party email client. And I believe the way you do this is you go into the preferences and you can basically kind of set up Office 365 to act as a, as a quad, kind of as a IMAP server. And you set up dispatch basically using the IMAP settings within Office 365. Have you been able to get that to work, David? I, you know, it's, uh, I saved Aaron's email to my OmniFocus and I've been so busy doing this OmniFocus screencast that that one got pushed back. So I haven't tried it yet, but, um, I'm tempted if they come out with an, an iPad version of dispatch, I'm going to be even more tempted because I do process a lot of email on yeah. that iPad. And, you know, I, I kind of knew that this was an option with exchange because I, I had a, a tech issue with, with my exchange account at one point, And that was one of the workarounds that I had to use for a short period of time until they got it straightened out was basically using exchange through IMAP. And I think that's how this workaround works now, whether that will continue to work or not. I don't know, but it's something to, to look into. Yeah. Uh, Charles wrote in and we did not talk about like the granddaddy mail plugins, uh, which is mail act on and mail tags. So for Apple mail, there's these great plugins, a uh, mail act on makes it very easy to act on mail coming in or going out and automatically save it to folders and do all sorts of great tricks with it. And mail tags gives you the ability to tag your email. As it says, um, they're both by a company called InDev, which is a small indie developer. I don't, I don't remember the name of the guy who develops it, but I've actually corresponded with him via email over the years. Super nice guy. And, uh, like I said, they're two of the most popular plugins for mail and we've covered them before on the show. I, I suspect we probably didn't talk about them because we've talked about them before, but it is, it's really nice. Um, so if you're looking, go ahead, go ahead. I say, if you're looking for a way to, to, to tag your mail and Apple mail, I would, I would look at mail tags very carefully and act on, I would almost go watch the video to see all the different things it can do. Cause they add a lot of features with every update. One of the things that Charles says that he specifically uses mail act on for is creating an outbox rule that delays all of his outgoing messages by five minutes. And the phrase that he used, and, and I agree, he says, because sometimes I'm five minutes smarter. And, and that's true. You know, when you send a when you go to send an email, you think five minutes later, huh, I something changed, or I shouldn't have done that. Or maybe I should have added an attachment or, you know, maybe I should have fixed something. And then Dave sent us a same an audio comment saying that he also uses a delayed send outbox rule. I'm sure he, he uses it using mail locked on, um, but he also uses SaneBox with this. So if my, assuming my audio works, let's, let's listen to Dave. Hey, Dave and Katie. Dave from Cincinnati here. I'm a construction engineer and frequently have to send submittals and requests for information to other engineers. Sometimes the submittals take a long time to review and I need to set a reminder to get back in contact with the engineers to make sure that they, uh, they're actually reviewing them. I'm a SaneBox user and also on Exchange. What I've realized is that sometimes I send out these emails with the attachments and forget to add the follow-up. So I set up a rule for all outgoing emails in Exchange to delay the sending for five minutes so that right after I hit send and I have that moment of, oops, I forgot to add the email address in for the follow-up, I can reopen the email, add the address, and then send it on its way so that in seven days, if I don't hear back, I'll get a reminder email from SaneBox. Thanks for the show. That's a good idea. 
Yeah, because such smart listeners. Uh, yeah, the um, don't you? I find because a lot of, in my day job, I'm sending things that have legal significance, and uh, whenever I send one of those emails that's got that, you know, that's kind of got some weight attached to it, I find it really hard to push the send button. I'll, I'll print it out. I'll read it again. I'll I'll just leave it in my drafts and then come back to it in a while. Adding you know one more kind of safety gap with a delayed send. Is a pretty good idea. Uh, we also heard from John, who talked to us about uh, a plugin called Evermail. And I'm surprised that I missed that because it's by a guy who makes two of my favorite plugins. He makes the, the Send Later plugin. And um, I'm going to get the name of this wrong. It's the Forget Me Not plugin. And yeah. uh, Evermail is um, a better plugin for Evernote. And uh, it's similar to the OmniFocus Clipatron, but it adds an Evernote toolbar into Mail. And then you can use a keyboard shortcut to take selected emails and their attachment directly into uh, Evernote for later reference. And we've talked about how you can use the Evernote trick to forward something to an email address, but this is more flexible. And I think I'm going to do that because, you know, we, we use Evernote for a whole bunch of things, uh, especially in prepping the show in particular. So... I'm going to take a look at that plugin as well. Yeah, I'm going to as well. You know, it's funny with uh, how many plugins are you actually running? Um, I use the Clipatron for OmniFocus. Yeah. Uh, I use uh, SendLater. Yeah. I use, um, there's one that I really like, but the developer is unfortunately really lagging on on support. And so I'm looking for a replacement. It it used to be called, um, it was one that cleaned up your attachments so that you didn't have... um, Attachment Tamer is what it was called. Yes. Yeah. So it didn't show a picture it just or it didn't show a PDF. It just had an uh, an icon. Right. But it's it's not working, I don't believe, currently under Yosemite. And he was still having trouble with, with the latest OS. It was just, I don't, I don't know what the current state is. I've kind of given up. So I'm not using that anymore. But if anybody has a has a suggestion for that, I'm I'm open. Right now, I'm just kind of doing the preferences hack to, to get around that. And then um, I think that's it. I go back yeah. and forth with Mail Act on. Yeah, well, I, I'm very tempted with this this idea that Charles had to go and reinstall Acton again and take a look at it. But, you know, one of the things that, that reduced the need for Acton was when Apple Mail adds so many keyboard shortcuts, like, you know, option, you, you know, the, the trick where you hold on the option key and you hit one, two, three, four, or five, you can go through the folders or the email folders that you've dragged to the top of your screen. And if you hit control command, you can move an email there. So it's very fast to process an inbox, holding down the control command and hitting the corresponding numbers. And it just sends it there. And that's something I used to need act on for, but now I can do with the native app. But the delayed send and some of the other stuff they've been doing in act on, I think I need to go go there. Mail tags I've stopped using because I just found that tagging email didn't, it wasn't necessary for me. The search is good enough. Right. Yeah. Oh, here's a here's an unrelated tip. I was having problems. In fact, right after that email episode with uh, Mail Search, where it just stopped working, and I thought, oh, this is David's fault because he was, you know, he everything was everything is my fault. Everything is your fault. <laughs> where he was going on and on and on and on about how great Mail Search is and how Mail Search never fails them, and here I am typing in the name of somebody who I know has sent me emails, and not a darn thing is showing up in my search and. It was a problem with my Spotlight index. I had to go use, um, actually, our, um, I, what tool did I end up using? Uh, I, oh, you know what? I can't talk about it. Um, but I had to use one of many tools. 
that you can use to go clean your spotlight index and your your mail indexes to to start to figure that out. I had a, that must be a Yosemite thing because my wife had the exact same problem and and uh, this week I reset her spotlight index and it fixed it. So there must be something going on with that. Yeah, I've heard a couple of people have had that issue. Uh, we heard, we heard from Bruce and uh, he talked about using email accounts for specific uses. And he said he agrees with the sentiment of not having too many emails, but the exception is where it's a job that he's going to give away at some point. And uh, he's the webmaster of a local soccer club, and he doesn't expect to keep the job for a long time. And he doesn't want that email to his personal address, which makes perfect sense. So he um, created an inbox or a mailbox. uh, I'm sorry, he created an account for that job. And everything goes to that account. And when his successor comes in, he's going to just assign the account to that person and he gets all the history. And Bruce doesn't have to try and extricate all that stuff from his mail system. That was smart. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because then depending on, you know, sometimes when when you take on those those. Um, voluntary roles at organizations, people send you email and you may not want those people to really have your real email address because when you pass that role along, you want to pass along everything that goes with it to whoever your successor is. Well, also just kind of in the volunteer groups and things, it's been my experience that a lot of people that are involved with that stuff like to use those mail lists for other things too, like in the community. Then all of a sudden you start getting marketing email and all sorts of other things that those lists tend to make their way around. So, yeah, they do. So that's a, that's a very good point. Um, we also got an email from Mike, you know, we, we talked a lot about how uh, pop versus IMAP and how we, we just, we really don't like pop and we think everybody should use IMAP. And, and Mike was kind of the lone voice who said, you know, Pop has a place, and he said, my email provider actually recommends using Pop for email, and their reasoning is this, that once the email is deleted from their servers, they cannot turn your mail over to comply with subpoenas or for search warrants. And I'm going to have to take a little bit of an issue with this, because if your email provider is the one who is giving you this reasoning, doesn't that sound a little self-serving? Yeah, it sounds like an excuse to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, because it, it, the police are, well, I don't, we're not giving legal advice on the no. show, but if you have email on your, on your system, it's possible people could try and come and get it there just as easily. Right. I, I mean, as, as David and I know, as people who have gotten information from people who probably didn't want to give that information to you before, there are ways to get this. I mean, it, people can get this information and your email provider, even if you are using POP, probably doesn't purge that stuff as regularly as you would think they do. There's probably ways to get it, not only from their system, but from your system. And to me, that just sounds like a cop out for we don't want to support IMAP. And I think the benefits of having IMAP so far outweigh this. And, you know, I, I realize privacy is important and, and please don't send me the emails about how, you, how you're discounting this. But is, is that really a concern that your email yeah. might be turned over to comply with a subpoena? Also, um, I just think that, you know, for, for most people, only- for most people. The only case for a pop is, is really if you just have one device and you never intend to have two, (laughs) that's, I don't know who that is anymore. 
I'm going to get so much email hate about that. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I guess the the other thing I'd say in Katie's defense is the guys in black helicopters have probably slurped up that. They've already got it. Yeah. Long before the, uh, this, the uh, company deletes it from their servers. Anyway. Right. uh, Okay. Steven wrote in about follow up then, and he says he's a keen SaneBox user, but he also likes to use follow up then. And it's similar to SaneBox with that remind feature. Um, you know, Samebox is a thing where you can blind copy or or copy if you want. Like, say, if I send an email to Katie about you know getting a new batlith, and and I can put one week at samebox.com in the blind copy field, and if she doesn't reply to me, Samebox reminds me in a week that hey, I sent that email, I never got a response, which is an amazing trick if you're somebody who's trying to manage things through email and you don't want to have to create a separate OmniFocus task or whatever app you're using to manage all this stuff to keep track of it. Um, it's something that when I remember to use, it's, I just love it and I've gotten really good at the habit. But anyway, so, so Steven says, I like that feature, but he's using follow up then, which is a similar, um, service that just covers that piece of it. And the thing he likes is that they have, um, that he can use like 20 minutes instead of one, you know, instead of a day's. And I'm going to look into that. I'm not sure what the limits are with SaneBox for that, because I, I have used all sorts of odd dates and times. Like I will say, you know, next Tuesday or something, and they usually get it right. Yeah, I, I it's funny, the, the yesterday as we were prepping for the show, and I remember seeing Stephen's email when it came in, but I, I just, you know, forwarded it to our show prep and then set it aside. But yesterday I, I'm dealing with a salesperson for an issue at, at work for a service we're considering buying. And I noticed that she sent the email to me and then uh, CC'd it to three days at followupthen.com. And I thought yeah. that must be a Sanebox type service. Yeah. And and then I thought, huh, how silly was she not to be CC it to that instead of CCing it, to that, yeah. but whatever. Um, and yeah. so I looked at it and they actually do have a, a free level plan. It's It's limited, but if you're looking to just get started. Uh, Gabriel wrote in about catch-all domains, and this is a great idea. We totally should have covered this. Um, if you, you know, we've talked about the advantages of owning your own email domain, you know, buy a domain of your name and set your email up with that. It's going to cost you a few bucks, but it's a lot easier to do now than it ever has been before. And you can set up at those domains what they call catch-all addresses. And so basically anything that comes to, you know, maxsparky.com goes into this catch-all. So if people misaddress something or make a, you know, make a mistake, you still get it. And what uh, Steven does is he goes out and when he goes to a place, he gives an email at like, you know, if they say, we need your email address, uh, he'll say, my email address is Home Depot at maxsparky.com or whatever his domain is. And and so he does a separate one for every vendor he goes to. And then he can, you know, not only can he befuddle the cashier, but he can also keep track of who sells what email addresses because you start seeing stuff come in, you know, marketing stuff and it's addressed to Home Depot. You're like, oh, okay. So Home Depot gave my address to these guys. Well, and I think the beauty of that is you don't even have to set it up. It just sends yeah. it to whatever. Yeah. Well, you do need to set up the catch-all. You do when set up the catch-all, this, right. But you don't yeah. have to set up one for Home Depot. You don't have to set up another one for Lowe's. And, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Tate, did I tell you that I, I finally, after 10 years, made contact with the person who owns katiefloyd.com? Oh, really? I did. Uh, you know, Are Hover, you Hover, now the owner? No. Hover has a service where you can, you know, they'll, uh, this is totally unrelated, but side note, but they have a service where you can, like a valet uh, negotiation service to try to buy domains from people. 
Yeah. Yeah. He uh, hasn't used the domain, hasn't done anything with the domain for 10 years. I think that's his yeah. daughter's name. So I don't blame him for, for having yeah. it. But um, yeah, he, he wants uh, $2,500. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of money, Katie Floyd. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, thank you for writing me back. H- happy holidays. I think the days of the domain name Lotto are over. The good ones, I'm sure there's some out there that are very valuable, but I don't think there's that many you can buy at this point. Well, and I've got everything else. I've got the .net, the .co, the .org, the .you know. I just All don't right. have the .yeah. Anyway, moving on. I just thought that was funny. Um, we also heard feedback from GD about uh, forwarding old email accounts. And he says, I have a suggestion for those who have like a bunch of old pop or um, uh, IPN uh, accounts like Verizon, Comcast, et cetera. And, and I thought we talked about this at one point. Maybe we didn't do it in that show. But um, we told people to go cold turkey and just switch over to IMAP. And oh. he says, that's okay. But if you set up like Gmail, they can slurp in those pop email accounts and combine them together. And that's perfectly uh, a great solution. So if you've got a bunch of those old accounts and you want to make sure that you can still get the stuff, set up a Gmail account, point it at that pop server and Gmail will take it all in. Yeah. Or you can set up forwards. We may have recommended going cold turkey in this particular episode. Here's my general rule. If you're moving email accounts and you're like moving forever, here's what I do is um, most email accounts give you the ability to set up an autoresponder. Sometimes they call it a vacation reply. Usually you have to go into the webmail to do this, but almost even, even the most basic email accounts typically have it. So usually what I do is I send out an email to everybody in my address book that I really care about saying, hi, I'm moving. Here's my new email address. Please update your address book. And a few people, but not many will do that. And then what I do is I go into my old email account and I forward that email from the old email account to the new email account. And then I set up an autoresponder on the old email account that says, Katie's no longer here. And then depending on how I'm feeling about it, depending on the type of spam and the type of stuff that's going into that account, I may or may not include my new address in that autoresponder. So just personal preference, it depends. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think I'm more willing than Katie just to like, just burn my ships at the shore and move yeah. on. Sometimes you got to do that. I did that when I got my new iPhone, when the iPhone one came out, because I switched carriers and they're like, you want to move your phone number? I'm like, no, I'd like a new phone number. (laughs) I don't want any of those people calling me ever again. (laughs) They got to get through the system now. Um, Well, there was a lot of great feedback and email. We didn't cover it all. Thanks. And and folks, you know, send us your, uh, your uh, audio comments on the email as well. That's, that's a touchy subject for people. I think everybody's still struggling with it as we're recording the show. Um, uh, Keegan is in the chat room talking about, uh, talking to the people in the chat room about advice for a windows mail client. And I got, I've got nothing, but the, uh, but you know, this is a, a constant issue. And I, I guess my big follow-up point on email is it's getting better. You know, I, I don't think email is the terrible thing. Everybody thinks it is. I think people are starting to become more conscious of better email habits and, and these app developers that we know and love are, are starting to make some pretty great apps and services like Samebox are making it easier. If you bring, you know, your Mac power user attitude to email, you're going to, you're going to have a better time of it. All right. Well, I, I, we got to move on. Um, we got a lot more stuff to cover, a lot of good stuff to cover, a lot of great listener tips coming up. Uh, but before we do, I want to take a break and talk about Squarespace. And since this is the feedback show, 
Uh, let's listen to uh, let's hear from a listener who has a Squarespace experience. You know, I asked in the last few shows uh, for you to send in your Squarespace stories, and we heard back from Helmut. And Helmut says, "You listened. Uh, you mentioned in your last feedback show that you wanted to hear from listeners who have started up a Squarespace account because of MPU. Well, I am one of them, and I recently set up a blog called Productive Academia: Work Smart and Be Remarkable." at helmethauser.com, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes, where I can finally give back to the community. I will share code that I've written, workflows, and also insights on productivity, especially in the academic context. So check that out. It's, I've been there. It's a nice site, a great-looking Squarespace site. And he says, by the way, uh, I also have bought OmniFocus, Text Expander, Hazel, Day One, Fantastical, One Password, Daisy Disk, Pixelmator, ScanSnap, and more. And I'm very happy with all that. They were great investments and worth the multitude of what they cost. So uh, keep up the good work. (laughs) So advertising on Mac Power users, it works. And, you know, this is kind of my, I think this is my two or three year anniversary of Squarespace. And the way that I I always uh, know it, and I don't know if it's down to the day, but I switched to Squarespace the day that I decorated my Christmas tree. And today we just went and picked up our Christmas tree. And the reason I did that is because my WordPress site went down in the middle of when I was with my family decorating the Christmas tree, you know, someone sent me a message and that pretty much ruined my night because I spent the rest of my night trying to figure out what was going on with some database error and trying to get it back up again. And I said, you know what, this is enough. Never again. I want to create content. I don't want to be a webmaster. And so that's when I switched over to Squarespace. And you've all heard us talk about Squarespace and they have just come out with this new version, Squarespace 7. They've made everything a whole lot simpler and easier to use, and you still get all the power of Squarespace platform, um, but a lot of great refinements and features that just makes it a seamless and unified experience. They've uncluttered your workspace. They've simplified the whole website making process. They let you add content and customize your design all in one window. And the best part of all is you can just focus on making a really great website and not worrying about being a website administrator. You're going to spend even less time building a site and more time doing what you love. So if you decide that you want to start looking at creating a Squarespace site or moving your site to Squarespace, uh, this is a great time to do so because you'll get a free trial. We've got some time over the holidays to kill potentially. Um, And you can get a free trial and 10% off by going to squarespace.com and using offer code MPU. So again, if you want to share your Squarespace story and your Squarespace site, want it featured on a future episode of Mac Power Users, send it in to us. Tell us how you use Squarespace to create an awesome site and we'll see what we can do for you. So uh, don't forget, head over to squarespace.com, and when you sign up, make sure you use the offer code MPU to get 10% off and show your support of Mac Power users. So we got some general follow-up over the last month. One of the things that we have continued to uh, fail our listeners at is getting this DevOnThink show done. And uh, so That's all we, you. Yeah, it is all me. I've been playing with it. It's just, I just want to do the the thing justice and it's hard wrapping your head around it. Um, But uh, so Michael did send in an audio comment though about Devin Think for education. And that's kind of in relation to the stuff you were talking about, but let's hear what Michael said. Hi there, Katie and David. It is Michael Elliott from the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, calling you, leaving a voice memo about your apps and education and a few others. I uh, just want to say, first, I am just discovering the the backlist of your podcast and listening my way through it. 
and I'm really impressed and pleased with all the apps that you're giving reviews of. Your text expander snippets episode was uh, really amazing. Uh, and I want to put in a plug for DevonThink as a an app for education. Personally, I've used it to uh, index, to run OCRs on all of my PDFs. I used to have about three enormous file drawers full of articles and notes that I had, old photocopied handouts and multicolored paper and a lot of my handwritten stuff from when I back when I was an undergraduate. Now I'm a, an associate dean for teaching and learning in my faculty. And one of the things that I advocate for is the use of technology in the classroom in creative and innovative, smart ways, uh, but also for technology in research. So uh, DevonThink is my go-to manager for all of my information. And I love how you can throw absolutely anything into it. It will not only OCR what you've done, but you can, as you know, run all these artificial intelligence uh, patterns on it to find out what else you have in your personal knowledge base. Just quickly before I go, because I want to keep this to two minutes, I want to put in a plug for Scrivener as a as the uh, word processing app of choice. Uh, bookends as well for my bibliography management. And finally, Things for task management, which syncs across all of my devices. Those are my uh, the apps I spend all of my time in, and I would be lost without them. So more talking about them would be great. I love the show and uh, appreciate you hearing my input. Thanks. You know, there's so many people in academia who are so passionate about their software. I kind of like that. I've never heard anybody say that we haven't talked about Scrivener enough. But now we need to. Now we need to talk about it more because Michael said so. (laughs) (laughs) I just I had to write a, a big thing for work this week. And I had, you know, at work, my my laptop plugged into an Apple cinema display and it's just so amazing when you get all of your research into Scrivener and you just fill up the whole 27 inches with it and you use that split screen where you've got PDFs and documents and research on the left side and this blank text on the right side. And, you know, I just I just feel like every time I'm cheating, every time I use that app for one of those big projects. Right. Well, and kind of the the flip side is that or uh, another view of that Um we also heard from Ethan about using Evernote in academic workflows. So let's take a listen to that. Hi, David and Katie. Ethan here, calling from the Kingdom of Denmark. I've been following your ongoing discussion of Evernote with interest, and I have lots of thoughts about it. But after last week's great show on academic workflows with the academic, I wanted to take issue with your claim that academics don't really use Evernote. I'm a professor and a researcher, and although it's taken me a while to figure out where Evernote belongs in my professional life, it has slowly become one of those key applications that helps me keep my head above water. There are a couple of things that Evernote is particularly good at, and I just wanted to share one of them with you. A large part of my research involves writing code to analyze sets of data. I don't always know exactly what steps I'll need to take when analyzing a new data set, and sometimes I need to try several different things. Because of this, it's very important to keep a good lab notebook so I can go back later and figure out what it was that I did. This is where Evernote comes into the picture. I keep a note for every project in which I enter text, attach images, or attach or paste in code that I've written. As an example, I might want to write some code to plot a portion of the data. In Evernote, I then write a few lines saying something like plotting the Henderson data. I then attach a text file that contains the code that I wrote. And finally, I paste in the resulting plot below. In this way, I can clearly see what I plan to do, how I did it, 
what the result was, and I can go back to any stage and reconstruct the whole thing. Finally, I can share these notebooks with collaborators, and they can see what I'm doing and run the code themselves if they want to. There are fancier ways to do this, like using IPython notebooks to produce an HTML document, but Evernote is easy and ubiquitous, so I can look at the plots or code or add ideas as they occur to me, wherever I am. So that's just one of the ways Evernote has made its way into my daily life as a researcher. Thanks so much for putting out a great show every week. I always learn something, and I really appreciate your work. Thanks, Ethan. I, that was well put. And I would like to say, I don't think I said Evernote can't be used for academics. I'm pretty sure you said that. You said I that. am using Evernote in academics. I think you said you hate Evernote and you're never going to use it again. Something like that. Clearly, I must have been the one to say that because you are Mr. I love Evernote. The, um, you know, it's, it, I still have trouble figuring out where that application fits with me, but the, uh, you know, nobody wants to hear about that. David wrote in about dealing with compromised credit cards and, uh, he talked about the email podcast. And at some point in that, I talked about the fact that for some reason this year, the, uh, all the crooks in the world have decided to steal my credit card. And every time I turn around, I get, I have one credit card and every time I turn around, I've got to get another, like I get another one because somebody else gave away my data. And so I'm really tired of having to go sign up for all these services. And he had a great idea. So what he does, he's got two and he's got one that he just uses for his repeating, like auto billing events. And then one that he uses when he's going around to places. And that's the one that usually gets compromised. So if that one gets compromised, he doesn't have to reset all the other ones. Does that, did I explain that? I don't think I explained that properly. Well, it's basically you have a credit card that you keep in a drawer and and you only use it for recurring billing things that you program, not for out and about stuff. Yeah. Uh, a related note, have you been using Apple Pay? I did. I actually did some Black Friday shopping with Apple Pay. Yeah, me too. I'm using it. Actually, I find quite a few people that I shop at are starting to support it. And now I find myself looking like to support, like I was thinking the other day I was at the gas station and I was thinking, you know, I I should find a gas company or a, a, you know, gas station that supports this stuff and start using them instead of the one I was at because, because I'm so tired of this credit card compromise stuff. uh, And I find it very easy to pay with Apple pay. I, I think Apple got that right. Yeah, I, I, so one of the gas stations support Apple Pay, but they only support it in the store, not at the pump. Oh, really? Well, I have and to that's research a, that. That's a pain. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go um, in the store to pay for my gas. Also, in the general question category, uh, we received a lot of interesting uh, questions this month. One of them was from Ron, and he kind of stumped me. He said that he's got a friend who's going to be doing a lot of presentations, and he's the you know he is the alpha geek in his circle, and they wanted his advice on picking a projector. And I didn't really give him a very good answer, but I thought, well, let's go ahead and put it in the show and just talk about the su- subject of projectors for a minute. Um, you know, there's different kinds of projectors out there. Um, there's the kind that you can buy if you want to use it for your TV and watch movies at your home. And I think that's a different category of projector than the one you would get if you're just going out to give presentations. And the good news is the presentation type projector can be um, a smaller projector. Less expensive. Yeah. Um, and, and physically smaller as well. <laughs> but I, I think the factors you should consider is, and you can go online and research this stuff, but in terms of brightness, I would want something 
probably in the neighborhood of 3000 lumens. If you're, you know, for usual presentation work, when you start getting much lower than that, I find that it's hard to give a, 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 um, a, to project in a room with the lights on, if it doesn't have, if it's not bright enough, and then you have to turn out the lights and it just gets kind of weird. I think you want the ability to give your presentation with the lights turned on. Um, something that's got a lot better over the last few years is portability. I mean, the first one that, that um my 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 firm bought i didn't buy it because it was like fifteen thousand dollars it's like a suitcase and now they're very small in fact they have the very very small ones that like fit in your palm i haven't seen any of those that i liked yet it seems like they're not bright enough and there's there's too many compromises but you can get get a projector that's about the size of a laptop computer that's really great now and I would also recommend getting one with a high enough um resolution and I think at nineteen twenty by ten eighty is probably the the minimum I would buy if I was buying a new one because you want to have high um, resolution when you're projecting on a big screen. It, it really shows up when you've got poor resolution. All right. Can I take a, an, a, a contrary view? Yeah. I disagree with do. everything you said. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I would question, um, I would question what the, the true need for a projector. And because I think that the need for a projector is, is really diminishing these days. You know, I, I know that we recently converted our big conference room and, you know, it cost us less than a thousand dollars to have to buy a big 50 inch plasma and have someone come in and professionally hang it and, you know, hide all the cables and things like that. And, you know, so we've got a, we've got an HDMI, you know, hookup and, a, you know, a couple of adapters that we keep in a drawer. So when we give presentations now, we, we do it on a flat screen. And I'll tell you, bonus, we also hook a, we pop an Apple TV on the back of that thing and it makes a great babysitter when when we've got kids who come into the office um you know i think more and i think you're going to start seeing projectors i think you already have started seeing projectors become less and less of an issue and more people you know presenting to flat screens that's not to say that there's no reason to have a projector there's certainly some cases i mean if, if this is what you do for a living if you're if you're traveling to give presentations, if, if you giving sales pitches, um, or you're doing training for a living, then yeah, you, you probably do need to have a setup that has a projector because you can't rely on everybody having one. But before you go out and spend several hundred, if not thousand dollars or more on a projector, I, before I bought a projector for my office, I would put a flat screen on the wall. Yeah. But I, I think that the context of the question was somebody who's going out and and if you're going to be going somewhere, you should probably have your own projector. Even when I go places and they tell me they have a projector, I still bring my projector and keep it in the trunk because you'd be surprised how often you get there and the projector doesn't work or the connections aren't right or or it's a terrible projector. So, you know, there, there's some good things to look at if you're buying one. You don't need to get the movie quality one for giving presentations, though. So you can you should be able to get into one for like 500 bucks at this point. Yeah. Just be careful. Don't buy one of those little, little Pico projectors that, you know, work with an iPhone or something like that. Those, those are really more personal projectors and that's, that's not going to work for giving a presentation. I sure am looking forward to when those things are great and, and right. they will be, it's only a question of time. And then you can literally have a projector with you at all times. Some, some part of me that is pushing a button inside me. <laughs> <You know. laughs> uh, Judy wrote in 
and wants some advice on recording family memories. And she says, a few years ago, I wrote my memoirs, and I have about 50 short stories about my childhood and growing up. And I would like to read and record them using my voice and maybe burn them to a CD, she says, or something. CDs probably aren't a thing anymore for my children and grandchildren. I want them to have a good quality, and I'm not sure what I need for this. Do I need special software? Do I need special hardware? Is this something I can do myself, or do I need to pay someone to do it professionally? And um, honestly, Judy, I would approach this a lot like like podcasting. And oh, boy, there's been no shortage of opinions on podcasting recently. And yeah, can we just declare this this show a podcast talk free zone for a while? Yeah, yeah. But to, I, I do want to answer Judy's question because yeah. I think the beauty of of having a Mac. In and having tools like, you know, I think your Mac's going to come, any new Mac is going to come with GarageBand now, or you can go buy it for $4.99 off the App Store. Um, I think rather than, you'll, you'll pay somebody several hundred dollars to do this for you or to help you do this. And Probably several thousand, actually. Maybe more than that. And I think for definitely less than 200 and probably less than $100, you can do this yourself. Um, I would go buy a reasonable USB mic. I would look seriously at the Yeti um, just because that's a nice tabletop desktop mic that you can just plug directly into your computer by USB, you know, go watch some tutorials. You can, you can, you know, lynda.com would probably be where, where I would start, you know, full disclosure, they're a sponsor um, and, and get some tutorials about using GarageBand and, and good mic technique and, um, you know, setting up audio equipment but you're going to be able to get, you know, sitting in a quiet room, um, you're going to be able to get pretty good audio quality with a reasonable mic, you know, probably a sub hundred dollar mic, USB mic plugged into your Mac and and recording into GarageBand. And with a little either training yourself, getting a book, watching a couple of videos, you're going to be able to, to edit that and, you know, clip some stuff out and edit some stuff together. If you're willing to put the time in, this is totally something you can do yourself for sub $200. The other thing I would add is because she had some pictures she wanted to add. And as I understood it, she wanted to kind of make her voice like a voiceover and then put these pictures on the screen. Um, I would look at um, taking that audio and then putting it in iMovie, which you already have. Or I would also take a serious look at Photo Magico, which is a third party application, but very good at that kind of stuff. And so I would record the voiceover and then I would put the, the video or the pictures to it. And you can get that Ken Burns effect and you can make it look really nice. And if you, if you're a little intimidated by it, this is definitely not a, you know, level 10 project. It's like a level five project. So you could get yourself up to speed and do it. I had the same idea with my mom and just at the time in my life, my kids were really young and I just didn't have time to go and really record her talking about the stories of her growing up in Massachusetts and all the things that, you know, the depression and all these great stories she had. And I know the stories because she told them to me, but I wish I had recorded them before she passed away because I could make something really amazing that my grandkids could watch. And uh, I'm kicking myself about that. So Judy, my recommendation, whatever you do, if you have to hire someone, go ahead. But Katie's absolutely right. You could pull this off. Do get a good microphone, though, because you don't want that, you know, lousy audio of your voice. Um, Brian wrote in and says, I'm just starting to think about how to set up my home network stuff. 
I was thinking about getting a Drobo. I'm confused as to what it actually does. It looks like a backup system, but then I hear Katie and David talk about streaming video from it. So then I thought I might get a Mac Mini to act as a media server. But then on the last MPU Live, Katie's now thinking about getting rid of her home Mac Mini. So now I'm really confused. Mostly, I'm looking for a media server that can hold movies and shows so that I can watch them either on my laptop or my iPad and get them off my poor Wii SSD and stop having three Western Digital Passport drives uh, around the place. But backup would be nice, too. And, and Brian actually posted that on our Google Plus community, uh, which if you haven't, you can go to MacPowerUsers.com slash Google Plus, and that'll take you right there. There's some great discussion going on there. And so... Without going into a ton of detail, um, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about what a NAS can do. And you know, Drobo's a sponsor, so I don't want to focus too much on on Drobo versus other NASs. But but what a smart NAS can do, um, Drobo, Synology, there may be others out there. And and when you kind of need a, a computer or a Mac Mini or something like that, running the show. Okay, so okay, you, you, okay, you're so running both. <laughs> you're running both, Katie. Because I'm fine with a network attached storage. I have a Drobo five in, and it serves all the needs for our family. But you're doing both. So where do you see the dividing line? Well, it depends. Um, so the Drobo five in, which which you and I both have, is is a smart NAS, and Synology also makes some smart NASs as well. And you can look at those. And and what those smart NASs will do is they'll not only be a big old pot of storage that you can use for things like backup, like you can, I also do backup to my Drobo time machine. Um, and I put all my videos and all my iTunes library and all my audio and things like that on the Drobo. So that's great. I mean, there's something to be said about having a big pot of storage that you can use for stuff. But the the beauty of the 5N and some of these other smart NASs is that they have apps. And the app that I use in particular on the Drobo 5N is an app called Plex. And Plex is an app that you're seeing. Um, it's built into many smart TVs. I have a Samsung smart TV that it's built into. Um, you may see it on the Roku. It's on the Amazon Fire TV. It is not available on the Apple TV unless you hack the Apple TV. But what it is, is it is a media server that can take, um, you have to install it, but you can ta- it takes media that is stored on these devices and it gives it a, a, a great interface that allows you to then play that media. And um, there you can learn all about it at, at the Plex website. And Don McAllister has done a couple of great screencasts on Plex. And there's all kinds of things that you can learn about Plex. Uh, they've got an iOS app, so you can use it with the Apple TV if you're if you're willing to AirPlay or, or you can hack if you have an older version of the Apple TV to get it to work. But so if if you're not tied to the iTunes ecosystem and all you want to do is to be able to store your non-DRM content on this drive and be able to play it, uh, then a Drobo or a Synology may be all you need. And that's kind of why I was talking about, you know, I may not need this Mac Mini that I have because, you know, that's really all I'm doing is I'm, I'm storing this data and I'm playing it. Now, in my particular case, I, I live in a very iTunes-centric ecosystem. Um, the Apple TV is probably the hub of my entertainment center. Um, and unfortunately, at this point, I have not found, and if anybody knows, please tell me, of, of any iTunes server-type app for these NASs. So in order, although my iTunes library lives on the NAS, in, in order for my various Apple TVs that I have around my house to see my iTunes library that lives on my NAS, 
I have to have a Mac in my house somewhere, powered on, tied to that library, basically to ask to act as the interface and as the server of that library. Um, that Mac doesn't have to be doing anything else, but it has to be running iTunes and and tied to that library. So for that reason, I um, this past weekend I did a, a Mac Mini swap. I, I took my newer Mac Mini that I had at home and took it to the office, and I took my older Mac Mini that I had at the office and I brought it home. Um, because, you know, for, for just serving up iTunes, a, a 2009 Core 2 Duo Mac Mini was, was plenty powerful. Um, so that's, that's what I'm doing with that Mac Mini. Does that, did I, did I just royally confuse things? No, well, I don't think you really explained though. I mean, I think, a, I think if you're out there, I would look at it and NAS as the starting point. I'm not sure I would get a separate Mac and run it. Although like, like we had taught earlier, if you want the advantages of, OS 10 server, maybe that would be a good opportunity. I mean, it seems to me that the, the tipping point is when you attach a Mac mini to a television set and that you've in essence got an extra Mac in your house. And like, maybe you're somebody who wants to have a Bluetooth keyboard next to your couch and surf the web, you know, and I don't know, maybe you've got some services that don't work on Apple TV that you would like to put on your television set. So I can see a case for that Mac mini. And and if you do that, then I'm, I don't think you need a NAS because you can go ahead and attach drives to that and do a whole bunch of file storage, especially if you set it up as a server. Um, but if you don't want to deal with that, and frankly, I don't want to deal with that. I don't like having to flip through more inputs on my TV than I need the Apple TV. I know it's limited, but for the stuff we do, it's just fine. Um, so, so for me, the NAS is the answer. And, that's how I made the decision because I didn't want to attach it to an Apple TV. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I think the NAS is the starting point because you can always jump off from there um, because you can use, if I didn't have that Mac mini, all I would have to do differently is just make sure that my Mac was turned on and powered on and had iTunes running in order to use my iTunes library with my Apple TV. And the that's, one thing I would that's, a little bit of a more more of an inconvenience for me than for you because my Mac is a portable and you at least have an iMac at home. Yeah, and the one thing I would add to Brian is when you go to a NAS or a server, a mini server in the house, that connection, unless you're plugging directly into it, you are not going to get the kinds of speeds you had with those Western Digital Passports you're connecting to your computer. So. Um, there is a certain amount of inconvenience too with this stuff. Um, it's, it's just slower and you gotta be kind of smart about it, but it works fine. I mean, like one thing I did with my Drobo is I bought a little, um, flash drive that the Drobo has a slot in the bottom where you can put a flash drive in where it kind of caches and speeds up the storage. I think they call it the hot data cache or they've got some cool name for it, but that, that speeded it up for me quite a bit. So, you know, data, um, not only is it storage, it's also speed you have to consider. Yeah, and if you're if you're moving around video files, particularly high def video files, you want to make sure that you've got some kind of wired connection. Whether that's if you're if you're using a, a Drobo product in order to take advantage of the apps, it's it's pretty much gonna have to be the Drobo 5N, which means you want to make sure that you you've you're gonna have to have a, a hardwire Ethernet cable, um, and that should be fine. I I I use Cat6 cable here, and I'm I'm pushing high def all around the house, and it's not a problem. Cat six, cat seven, whatever it takes. Mm, yeah, okay. 
So, <laughs> yeah. So I actually have a cable down at my kind of where my network stuff is, and that's where the Drobo is. And occasionally I'll go down and just plug my laptop into it if I need to do big stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really great. I will tell you that it's really nice having something like this in your house where you've got this big pool of storage. And if you've got some apps installed, it can do work for you. It's almost like having a computer, but not quite. Uh, and then we got two final questions and, and they're pretty quick. I know we're running a little long. Uh, Chris also from Google plus says I've been a Mac power us users listener for a while, but I've only recently become a Mac owner. Although I know all about the benefits of programs like Hazel text expander and one password from David and Katie, I'm not very knowledgeable about the basics of the Mac. Can you recommend any good resources for beginners? I'd say Don McAllister. Yeah. Uh, Don McAllister screencast online is a great place to start. Uh, the beauty of Don's uh, screencast online is that once you subscribe, you immediately get access to his entire back catalog. And that is gold, total gold. Yeah. And he's got like a series, like a playlist series for if you're new to a Mac, it talks about things about like, how do you open windows and do silly things that you may not be used to. So uh, that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, Linda.com is is one that we've also also talked about. But Don is yeah. Don is completely Mac based and he does two shows a week now. Um he he does a, a Mac related show a week and an iOS related show. Yeah. Um we have Oh, and I also, guess we could say those are video tutorials. I don't think we said that. Yeah. Yeah. The screencasts online. Yeah. Um you know, we do have a, another sponsor too though. I want to talk about that. Oh. I guess we should. Yeah. And, and I also want to talk about the stuff that we bought this month. Cause I've actually got a couple things. There's actually a few more things I want to talk oh, about. Oh, okay. But, well, tell us about uh, smile. You know, first. Okay. Anyway. Uh, well, smile, which is long-term sponsor of the show has been hard at work on PDF pin for iPad. And they just really, so I'm kind of excited to tell everybody finally is PDF pin two and PDF ten, pin two for the iPad and the iPhone is now universal. You buy the app once and it's on both platforms and they've got this new iOS eight friendly version of PDF pin. And, and they've done a whole lot of work to make it great. Um, the, the new features include an entirely new user interface, uh, very much streamlined. They've got the iCloud drive support to import and export cloud-based documents, you know, because Apple has now enabled that. You can go right into your iCloud storage and pull documents and put it in subfolder. So it gives you a lot more structure. It, it's really great. And it's fully supported in PDF pin two. They've got an editing bar so you can access the most, you know, the most common editing tools with one tap. And they've got really great support for the styluses, like, you know, that Evernote stylus I bought. It works great in PDF pin. And they added this palm and wrist protection. So when you get your palm on the device and you're writing, it doesn't screw things up. It allows you to make great edits. It's universal for both iPhone and iPad. Uh, they've got password encryption for PDF documents right now on an iPad, which is kind of cool. You can add page numbering and including Bates pages. And this might be kind of a niche thing, but for people that do what I do during the day, adding Bates page numbering on your iPad, it's like, it's a killer feature. Um, 
they've got airdrop syncing, library of stamps. You can flatten annotations on exports, so when you send it out, the other guys can't make changes to it that, that you've put in. Uh, you can view and annotate uh, annotations in the sidebar. That's another cool new feature. And they've got a really cool new forum signature widget where you can make signatures. There's just a whole bunch of new features in PDF Pin 2. Uh, you need to go check it out. I'm going to be putting something up about it at the website, so I'm going to kind of explain how I'm using it. And I know Katie's already written about it, and uh, this is an application that has gone undergone a lot of work to make it uh, really quite great. So check it out, PDF Pin 2. You can find it in the iOS App Store. One purchase gets it on both the iPad and the iPhone. And thanks a lot, Smile, for supporting the show. Oh, and I guess we should mention with that, David, um, they, they are introducing bundling pricing. So if yeah. you've got PDF Pen already... Check out the PDF Pen bundle so you can get a little bit of a discount when you actually buy PDF Pen 2 if you already own PDF Pen for iPad or PDF Pen for iPhone. Yeah, you know, Apple doesn't really make it easy for people to sell up updates. So they came up with this kind of ingenious thing. You're going to bundle, but you're going to complete a bundle. And what you're doing is you're getting a discount for the full application. Yeah. Smart. I, I've heard that talked about before, but Smile's really the first developer that I know of who've, who's actually done it. So I'll, yeah. I'll be curious to see if that works for them. That's why I bought the bundle. That's how I did it. I bought the bundle, too. All right. So you got some new stuff. Yeah, but we also have Alan. We didn't answer Alan's question. Yeah, I noticed you didn't. Yeah. uh, He was talking about cleaning his stuff. How do I clean my MacBook? You know, what products does he use? He has an aluminum iBody. And uh, he saw the the iClear. It's I-K-L-E-A-R product. They sell it in the Apple Store. And, um, you know... (laughs) <laughs> Alan asked, what's your workflow for cleaning and maintaining your Apple products? Well, Sadly, you have a I, workflow for like wrapping stuff. So I actually do. And uh, <laughs> I actually have one. So in OmniFocus, I have. A oh, my gosh. Task. You do not. Do you really? I, I do. Because my wife and my daughters, their computers are filthy. They're just they just get filthy. And it makes me crazy. See, I don't have that problem. I don't need a task for my own stuff because I look at it and if I look at it and it's dirty, that'll make me nuts. And so I, you know, you shut down, you shut down your computer. All right, how does your computer get dirty? Well, just from use, you're touching it, you're moving it, your but hands I'm are dirty. Clean when I touch. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. Yeah, but it gets dirty. It gets dirty, and even just like the screen, you know the. Um, you get little bits on the screen when you're opening and closing the lid all the time. So whenever my 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 uh, laptop or my iMac gets dirty, I, I shut it down first entirely. That's the first step. You know, you don't want electrons buzzing around as you're doing things that are wet. And then I bought at Macworld, I think like five years ago, this massive bottle of iClear. You know, they had like a deal at Macworld. And I remember... I don't even know how I got it home in hindsight, um, but maybe that was, was probably before they had all those restrictions. <laughs> I don't know, but either way, I got, somehow I got this thing home and, and I didn't get thrown in the clinker, but the, uh, so I've got this stuff and I use it. And what I do, it's got a, a squirt on the end of it. So I, I actually take a little um, cotton uh, lint-free towel that, and I just squirt it on the towel and then I rub the wet towel on the device and it does a good job of cleaning it off. So I use the iClear product. I think, I think you're looking for something that has, and I don't want to get too technical here cause I'm not sure I'm the person to say this, but I think you want something that's got like an alcohol base or something that will evaporate very quickly. You don't obviously want to leave a lot of liquid. Yeah, yeah but, your, but no, you don't, you don't want to put alcohol. And in fact, iClear specifically says we don't have alcohol in our products. Oh, see, that's why I yeah. shouldn't be talking about this. 
Don't put alcohol so, on your Mac. So buy just buy iClear. Apple recommend it. They sell it in the Apple Store at least the last time I saw it. They did. Uh, so you, you, they can't tell you at the Genius Bar you made a mistake using it if they're selling it. Um, and so I use it and I just rub it down. I rub. I actually when it's turned off, I rub down the keyboard or the back of the device and the screen. So I use it everywhere. But the reason I have the OmniFocus task is my kids and my wife's computers get dirty and it makes me a little crazy. So like every like three months, I think I have a task for every one of the Macs in the house to go check it out. Yeah, it and says same- in big bold letters on the bottle, alcohol and ammonia free. See, well, Katie, you just let me have it there. What else did I get wrong? They that? they also make uh, you can buy these little travel pack wipes, and I keep a couple of these in my bag. They're singles. They're like um little yeah. singles. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those. And right. well, the, now um, I know what to get you for Christmas. Smile clear. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot. I still am in pretty good shape. But the uh, the other thing for the family computers is that's a not only do I clean it like every three months, I also look at it. I fire up Daisy Disk and look at the hard drive and just kind of. In general, making sure everything is is okay. All right. You know, well, we're we're running long, so let's uh, let's run through new stuff pretty quick. Yeah. Well, you have um, you have something here too. Yeah, I did go. You know, I, I have this bad habit on Black Friday of buying myself stuff. Yeah, it's so, so hard. Um, that is bad, Katie. Well, but I got a good deal, and so I I bought myself. It was one of Amazon's uh, lightning deals on Black Friday. Um, one of my favorite uh, vendors, we've actually already talked about them once, is 12 South. And they make a product called the Backpack. And this is a, a shelf that clips on to um, either an iMac or a, um, a an Apple Cinema display. And you can even do up to two of them. You can hold up to 12 pounds total. So you can add a shelf to your, in my case, it's a shelf to my cinema display. And I got one and then I put another one on my wish list. So hopefully I'll get a second one for, for Christmas. And what it's, what the, the shelf is doing right now is it's holding my super drive. And so previously I just had my super drive um, sat on the bottom of my desk and it was, but it was taking up desk space. So now my super drive is nice and elevated and it's tucked up right under the bottom lip of my uh, cinema display screen, all nice and tidy and out of the way and kind of like just levitating there. Yeah, that's nice. They also have a product that allows you to put it underneath the iMac and it's got a little drawer. I have to look it up. I don't remember the name of it. Yeah. High the high rise. rise. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the beauty about the backpack is you can put it on the, you can also put it like on the back. And so what I want is I want a second one to put on the back and I'm going to put my, um, my, uh, my Belkin uh, Thunderbolt dock on the back. Well, my, my, uh, my big uh, purchase this month was, it was a gift that someone gave me and it's the Klutz book of Star Wars folded flyers. Okay. It's a book of paper airplanes that look like X-Wings. My daughter and I have had so much fun with it. That's all I'm saying. It's not too late to get that for somebody for Christmas. For the Star Wars geek in your life. That's it. I haven't bought anything geeky this month. Klutz book folded flyers. Yeah. Klutz book folded flyers. They have it for Star Wars. I bet they have them for Star Trek 2, Katie. I have to look. I will look. I, I actually found them. Yep. It's available for sixteen seventy nine on Amazon. Yeah, it's great. It's got instructions. And if there's a kid in your life, you can spend hours together. Or just planes. if Max Barkey's in your life. Yeah, that's true <laughs> can, as well. Can, can, can you make a TIE fighter? 
I, what, what am I going to do when my kids get old enough that they don't want to do any of this stuff with me? I mean, how then, am I going to Then you have grandkids. Then you have grandkids. I hope so. <laughs> or I'm just going to have to go find kids somewhere. Like just my nephews stray, and nieces. stray kids off the street. <laughs> Lure yeah. them in. Come into my house, little what, child. What could go wrong with that? I know. You know I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into too much more trouble, I think we probably better better wrap this up. So this is our last MPU for the year. Um, I think it's been MPU live. MP, wait, 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 no, wait, wait, MPU wait. live. That's right. <laughs> is there something you didn't tell no, me? No, <laughs> that's right. We have more. We have more MPUs. This is our last MPU live for the year. Uh, but we covered a lot of stuff, and we'll have links to all of that in our show notes. You can find uh, links to that at macpowerusers.com or at five by five tv slash MPU. You can also send us feedback to feedback at macpowerusers.com, and Katie and I will both get that. Yep, and we're on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm Katie Floyd, and David is Max Sparky. And don't forget, we do have that survey, MacPowerUsers.com slash survey. Uh, we'll be out there shortly, uh, certainly by the time this show posts. And we, we really appreciate your feedback on how we can make the show better in 2015 and beyond. So it's been another fun MPU Live. Thanks, everybody, and uh, have a great week. We'll see you next time.